Would you please turn again to Psalm 34? It's going to be a big help to you if you can have Psalm 34 in front of you. We were in Psalm 34 last week, so I'm not pretending this week we're going to cover the whole psalm. There will be things we will miss out because we covered some parts of it last week. Last week, we were in Psalm 34 answering this question. What should we expect from God? What should we expect from him? Some say expect health and wealth. We saw some rather extravagant examples that of that last week. People who say you can expect a mansion and a jet and a Rolls Royce and a lavish lifestyle. Others, maybe in reaction to that, expect nothing much. Nothing much. Christian life is just miserably enduring, clinging on, while God remains distant. We saw last week that we should have high expectations of God. Psalm 34 is telling us, bring your needs to God with high expectations. But the expectations are not of millions of pounds and perfect health. No, high expectations of God, but not as if you and I can dictate the how and the when of God's good gifts. His aim is not to make us comfortable, it's to make us Christ-like. His aim is not to give you an ideal home on the forest side of Loughborough. It's to take you to a better home with him forever. We were considering what can you expect from God. Now it all then raises a question. Who can expect this? Isn't that the obvious question next? Who can expect this? Who does Psalm 34 tell us is delivered by God? Well, most of you say, easy, Christians, believers. Well done, you're right, correct answer. But the Bible has a richer vocabulary than we often use. It has a better description than just saying Christians and believers. They're both good words, both correct answers. But let's Take seriously tonight the language the Bible uses to describe the person who can expect great things from God. That's what this evening is about, taking seriously the language in this psalm to describe who that person is. Now, before we get into that, what can you expect from this sermon? I remember a while ago listening to a sermon which was a pretty basic gospel message. And afterwards, someone said to me, in not very approving tones, well, I'm used to cutting-edge teaching. I have since then wondered, what is cutting-edge teaching? I'd be interested to hear your opinion afterwards. But more importantly, I've been saddened, because she was someone I cared for and loved. And I thought it was a bad attitude to say, I'm used to cutting edge teaching. I prefer this saying, and I can't remember who I heard it from, but I once heard someone say, and I much prefer this attitude, most growth in the Christian life is by continual attention to familiar truths. I thought that's a good saying. Most growth in the Christian life is by continual attention to familiar truths. 
So if you want cutting edge teaching this evening, you've come to the wrong place to get what you want. You have come to the right place to get what you need. I hope so. Because we're going to be mainly, maybe totally, in familiar truths to most of us. That's what most of the time we need. It's all going to be pretty basic and familiar. Who can expect God's help? Two halves to this evening's sermon. Here's the first half. If you are depending on God. Who can expect great things from God? People who are depending on God. Let's have a look at what words are used here in Psalm 34 to describe the person who can expect God's help. First word, humble. This is in verse 2. The humble. Verse 2. Now, some of you, like me, are having a problem there. You're looking in verse 2. Where does it say humble? Some of you having that problem? If, like me, you've got the NIV. It's a good translation, the NIV. But you've got something missing there. Because in verse 2, it doesn't say humble, does it? It says afflicted. Afflicted. Now, that's not a bad translation. It's not completely wrong. Here... The word is for, and the description is of someone being brought low in life. So, yes, afflicted. If you're here last week, you might remember, or if you take notice of the title, which is original, David had been afflicted. His life was in danger, and he was on the run. He's been brought low. But crucially, verse 2 is describing those who have been brought low in their own view of self. The better translation is humble. It may be due to trouble, it may be due to circumstances, but the key thing in verse 2 is here's someone who doesn't have a high view of self. They've been brought low in their view of themselves. So humble is... The NIV isn't completely wrong here. It does have this sense of afflicted, but the most important aspect is is someone who's been brought low, humbled. And this is a repeated emphasis of the teaching of Jesus. Can you think of his most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount, how it starts? Can you think of this? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. He's not talking about because you're bereaved. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. When do you hunger and thirst after something? Not straight after Christmas dinner, do you? when you're lacking it. There are all ways of saying you need to be brought low. This is absolutely essential. You could believe Jesus died and rose again, do you? I hope so. You could be enthusiastic about telling others about Jesus, are you? I hope so. You could be convinced the Bible has the best explanation of, uh, of life. I hope you do. You could be a respected member of this church. That's jolly good. But if you have a high view of yourself, if you haven't been brought low, if you haven't had your self-confidence knocked out from under you, I can't see how you're a Christian. Even if all those other things are true of you, I can't see how you're a Christian. Because a Christian, because faith is... Clinging to Jesus with a sense of your weakness and your need. 
You see why I say we've got to take the vocab of the Bible seriously and not just say believer. And we're so familiar with it. It's a good word. But a believer is someone who's been humbled. Second word. The next word describing the person who can expect great things from God. Someone who calls. Do you see it in verse 6? Verse 6. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. Notice again, it's a poor man. He called. It's part of a set of words. There's a whole set of words that mean basically the same thing here. Have a look at verse 4. I sought the Lord. So that's the past tense of seek. You need to seek. And then look at verse 5. Those who look to him. Seek, look. Verse 6, call. And then it's put, it's the same thing again in verse 15. Cry. And verse 17, the righteous cry out. Do you see how all the words, all those words go together? They're the same thing really. Seek, look, call, cry. And they're all words describing, in my sense of need, I turn to God for what I need. I'm looking to him. I'm calling to him. I'm crying to him for what I need. Unbroken is a film that... uh, From what I remember of it, I I could recommend this film. I was a bit nervous about making film recommendations. But from what I remember, it's a pretty good film. It's about a a US plane in the Second World War shot down over the Pacific. And not all, but some of the crew survive, and they end up in the life raft of the plane, floating around in the Pacific. And what are they doing? They're looking out desperately for a ship on the horizon. For someone to come. And when they see a boat or a plane, they wave their hands and they call out. Now, it's a bit pointless calling. I don't suppose the people in the plane can hear. But you can imagine if you're waving for a plane and you're in a raft, you're not going to keep quiet. They call. They cry. They look. That's the sort of language here in this psalm. In other words, it's the language of sense of need and of urgency. It's the language of God, I need you. Now, this Old Testament language in Psalm 34, the New Testament takes and it says, direct your call to Jesus. He's the Lord you need. I'll give you just one example, but it's a very clear one. Romans 10, verse 13. It's a verse worth knowing. It quotes the Old Testament and it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But just a few verses earlier, it has explicitly said, Jesus is that Lord. He's the one we need. There is no one else you can look to for salvation. Call to him. Let's take the the words of the psalm seriously. Here's the next word. Well, it's two words, really. Take refuge. Do you see it in verse 8? Take refuge. And you see it in verse 22. Take refuge. I think there are some children here who were at the BBC this morning. By the way, that is not the British Broadcasting Corporation. It is the, what is it? Breakfast Bible Club? Yes, and they were learning Psalm 46. I wish the BBC would teach Psalm 46. But they were learning Psalm 46. Children, do you remember how it starts? God is our refuge. 
and strength. It's very frequent language in the Psalms, God being a refuge. Christians are refugees. Now, what is a refuge? What do you think of? I think of being in the Cairngorms, a mountain range in Scotland, and there is the refuge rock there. It's this massive boulder. From what I remember, it's about the size of a house. I, I think it really was. I don't think that's by imagination. And you can get underneath it. And why would you get underneath this rock? There's this hole there. There's a gap. And you can spend the night under there. Why would you spend the night under a rock like that? It's a shelter. It's a refuge to keep you safe from the storm. The rock takes the battering from the storm and you are safe and dry. Or you might think of a fortress. That's a refuge. A fortress in a war. When does an army take refuge in a fortress? When it's in danger. When it's weaker than the enemy. You don't spend your time in the fortress if you are the stronger one on attack. You do when you're the weaker one under attack. And so taking refuge, verse 8 and 22, taking refuge is saying, I am weak and I need protection. I can't cope on my own. I need to be in something that will shelter me. In. Now, what does the New Testament do with this? In the Old Testament, we so often read about taking refuge. In the New Testament, we keep reading, you need to be in Christ. That's the New Testament equivalent. You need to be in Christ. You need to cry to him, shelter me from the judgment of God that I deserve. You be the refuge rock that takes the battering of God's wrath on sin that ought to be falling on me while I safely shelter under you. Humble, brought low, calling, crying, looking, seeking, and taking refuge. Have I just described you? Do these words in Psalm 34 describe you? Please take that question seriously. I need to ask myself that, and all of you need to ask yourselves that. Please don't avoid the question by saying, well, I believe what the Bible says. I've been a Christian for years. Ask yourself, have you been brought low? Have you called and cried out to God? Have you taken refuge in Jesus? Nothing less will do. No other answer is good enough. Ask yourself. Check yourself. Remember, we're, we're asking who can have high expectations of God. And the first answer has been, if you are depending on God. Now, here's the second half. The second answer is, if you are righteous. If you're righteous. We're trying to take seriously the language of Psalm 34. And we must notice the language in the second half. Who are the people who can expect great things from God? Well, look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. Then look at verse 17. The righteous cries out and the Lord hears them. And then look at verse 19. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. And then look at verse 21. Evil will slay the wicked 
the foes of the righteous will be condemned. Now, I haven't counted, but I am pretty confident that the Bible describes God's people as the righteous far more often than it describes us as believers. I haven't counted, but I'm pretty confident about that. The righteous is a very frequent description of God's people. Who are these people God listens to and comes to their aid? Who are the righteous? Now, if you know the gospel, you are likely to say we are counted righteous in Jesus Christ. We simply trust him and his righteousness is counted to us. Correct. True. What a wonderful answer. Keep hold of that. That is your security. But we mustn't ignore the Bible's consistent message that righteous status must result in righteous living. So keep hold of your security. I'm righteous because Jesus' righteousness is counted to me. It covers all of my unrighteousness. If you're not familiar with the word righteousness, just miss the middle paragraph. Not paragraph, what's it called? Syllable, thank you. Syllable out. And it's basically rightness. I trust in his rightness. But the Bible says right status must lead to right living. And that righteous living is what Psalm 34 means. I've got three reasons for saying that. If you're sceptical of this, I've got three reasons. The first is, it's just the normal meaning of the word righteous. It's right living. Second reason is the structure of the psalm. Verse 11 to 14 teach us right living. And then verse 15 onwards says, now look what God does for the righteous. That's the structure of the psalm. Verse 11 to 14 is a bit of Proverbs-like teaching about living the right way. And then it goes straight into, the Lord hears the righteous, looks at the righteous, delivers the righteous. And then my third reason is there's a contrast in verse 15 to 22. Do you spot the contrast? The Bible is quite a binary book. That's very unfashionable today. But it is. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Or another example, verse 21, evil will slay the wicked, the foes of the righteous will be condemned. You've got a contrast between the righteous and the wicked evildoers. And so here righteous is right living. What is this right living that we need? Well, let's have a look at those verses 11 to 14, where you've got Proverbs-like teaching. Righteous living is a really big subject, and it can be put in very broad general terms, like verse 14, the beginning of verse 14, turn from evil and do good. There's righteous living in very broad brush terms. But verse 11 to 14 also gives us some specifics. And I want us to spend the next little while looking at those specifics and thinking about why has the psalmist said them? They seem rather specific. Why has he picked those aspects of righteous living in verses 11 to 14? By the way, as we do this, we're going to be flicking between Psalm 34 and 1 Peter. So it might help you to have both 
or, or you could just try and follow as you listen. But I'm telling you, that's what we're doing is to help you know where I'm going with this. What is this righteous living like? Well, verse 11 says it's fearing God. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. When we hear about fearing God, what's usually the first thing we say? I've heard this so many times. If I had a pound for every time I heard this, I'd be quite a bit better off. What's the first thing we say when we hear about fearing God? We say, it doesn't really mean fear. You heard that? It doesn't really mean fear. No. It means respect. It doesn't really mean fear. Do you know what we're saying? We're saying, God, you got the wrong word. Because the Bible says fear many, many times. And God could have chosen a different word, but he didn't. We're saying, God, you chose the wrong word. You've got us in a muddle. You should have said respect, because we keep thinking we ought to fear you. How? what a silly idea. Do you know what that is? Well, that is certainly not respecting God, let alone fearing him. God, you've got the wrong word. Yes, fear doesn't mean terror that God might have a bad temper and turn nasty. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean such a recognition of who God is that you are far from relaxed, casual and laid back about him. Yes, fearing God means you know everything is in his hands and that gives great confidence. But he is also intimidating. And we are supposed to feel that. Now, why, why is that put here when so much else could be put about righteous living? Why does Psalm 34 talk about fearing God? Because so, last time I, I, I referred to this chap, Creflo Dollar, who he's got mansions and a private jet and a Rolls Royce and he teaches that's what you can expect, that sort of thing, if you follow God. But Psalm 34 is not written to people living comfortably comfortably like him, is written to people under pressure from others and who might or probably will be tempted to fear them. It's written to unbelievers under pressure from other people who might be afraid. As we read 1 Peter, did you notice any parallels? You see, 1 Peter is such a helpful book for us. No surprise, as it's in God's word. And it's also written to people who were under pressure from a hostile society, from unbelievers around them, and who might be afraid. Here's one such person. I'll make him up and call him Rufus, as that was a a name from back then. Rufus is a slave, and his master is harsh. And Rufus is afraid for his future. Will he get beaten? Will he be sold to an even worse master? What's the future hold for him? And Rufus is afraid. And what does 1 Peter tell him? Um, Is there someone here who's got the NIV 2011 and could read us 1 Peter 2 verse 18? Because it gets the translation right and my Bible doesn't. Anyone brave enough to admit you've got the 2011 NIV and then to read it to us? Chapter 2 verse 18. Go on then, Tim. 
slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Thank you. Now, we can't go into what does the Bible have to say about slavery? Is it justifying slavery? A big subject that I'm not going into now. The point for now is it says to this slave I've made up called Rufus, fear God. That is the correct translation. The, my NIV has not quite got it right there. Fear God. Replace your fear of men with the fear of God. A sense you are in his hands. That gives you great confidence in your vulnerable situation. But he also expects you to obey him. Here's another person I'll make up. Let's call her Tryphena, another name from back then. Tryphena fears that following Jesus will get her frozen out by her neighbours because it was seen as antisocial to be a Christian. It might mean her family loses income because you were frozen out of society. What does 1 Peter tell her? Well, I'll read you what it tells her in chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. That is very close to saying fear God. Christ is the Lord. Set him apart. Come under his rule and don't fear them. That's why Psalm 34 has this emphasis on fearing God in a context where you may fear others and circumstances. What does Psalm 34 next tell us righteous living is like? Back in Psalm 34, verse 13. Verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Be careful what you say. Now, why pick this aspect of righteous living? It's very specific. There are plenty of others missed out of this psalm. Why what you say with your tongue and your lips? Again, because Psalm 34 is is written to believers under pressure from people. And what do we often do then? Well, I hope you don't, but what might we do? Lie to get out of trouble. Here's a very mild example. Jane works in a factory and there's a problem on the production line and the customer is calling and wanting to know how it's going. And Jane's boss says, tell the customer everything's fine and it's all on schedule. That's a lie. What will Jane do? If she fears people, she'll do what her boss says. If she fears circumstances, well, she'll lie because she doesn't want to endanger her job and her Income. If she fears God, she'll fear disobeying him and she'll tell the truth. She won't say, I'm a justified sinner, so it doesn't matter in the end. No. If she fears God, she'll also trust him. I will obey and the consequences are in his hands. I'll leave that with him. 1 Peter is also full of this. Did you notice as we read it? 1 Peter has got this theme. In many ways, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Chapter 2, it says to believers under pressure, therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Because, verse 3, you have tasted that the Lord is good. Does that ring a bell? Quote of Psalm 34. It says, 
Follow the example of Christ, even when others are being harsh to you and you're afraid for your future. Follow Jesus, chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. How could he be like that? Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So you've got this theme. The next chapter, by the way, will say it to wives who are afraid of because their husband is an unbeliever. It's got this theme of watch what you say. Don't lash out with your tongue. Instead, fear and trust God. What does Psalm 34 also tell us this righteous living is like? Verse 14. It's got that general description, turn from evil and do good. But it's then got something very specific. Seek peace and pursue it. Again, why is it picked this? It's very specific. Seek peace and pursue it. Well, again, because Psalm 34 is written to encourage people under pressure. People who are afraid of opposition that they're facing. What might they do? What might they do? Well, get all defensive and hostile. We live in a hostile society. I hope you're realistic about that and recognise. There may have been a lot of the Bible in the Queen's funeral. I was immensely encouraged. What a lot of the Bible there was in it. But usually the public square is more full of rainbow flags than Bible verses by a long way. We live in a very hostile society. And some Christians, being aware of that, they're always looking for a fight. Always provoking. And then they can say, look how persecuted I am. They're always abrasive because we're under attack and the enemy is out there. Psalm 34 and 1 Peter tell us the opposite. They say, seek peace. Or in the words of 1 Peter, submit to every authority. Yes, you're in a hostile society, but but live at peace with those around you as much as you can. Or 1 Peter 3 says, speak about Christ and stand up for the truth, but do it with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 3 says, yes, there are people who are against you and they treat you wrongly, but don't repay evil with evil and insult with insult. Live at peace as much as you can. So I hope I've shown you why verse 11 to 14 picks those specific examples of righteous living. And remember it says, it's those who are living righteously God comes to the aid of. Now, have we changed subjects since the first half of this sermon? I hope you can still remember the first half. Who does God help? Who can expect great things from God? Those depending on God. Have I now completely changed subject? Has this been two sermons? One on depending on God and then one on some details of righteous living. Is Psalm 34 in two halves? First half, depend on God. Second half, depend on how well you are doing in life. Is Psalm 34 in two halves? No. Psalm 34 is about depending on God from start to finish. It's all about depending on God. The righteous people are not perfect people. Verse 22, they still need to be redeemed. 
Verse 22, they are still taking refuge in Jesus so they're not condemned because they deserve to be condemned. The psalm is all about depending on God. These righteous people, they're still crying out to God. Do you notice verse 15, they're still crying out to God. Verse 17, they're still crying out. They're still depending on him. The psalm is all about depending on God. But, verse 11 to 14 is saying, if you depend on God, you'll fear him. You won't lie your way out of trouble. You'll obey him. And you'll trust him with the consequences. You'll know, verse 15, that you need God to have his eyes on you. You're depending on him to be watching you. Just like last week I said about a mother watching her toddler. You say, that's me. I'm like a toddler. I keep falling over, morally falling over. And I need God to have his eyes on me. I need that. But I also live aware that he has his eyes on me. And if that doesn't affect what you do, you've got no fear of God. And if you have no fear of God, you are really honestly not depending on him. This hasn't been two sermons on two subjects. It's all been describing what depending on God is like. The first half was depending on God is is lowly calling and crying and taking refuge. And the second half has been depending on God will make you righteous living in practice. If it doesn't, you are not depending. Let's not miss, though. Let's finish with this. Let's not miss. Psalm 34 is a positive, joyful, celebratory psalm because it's saying, praise God, we can expect big things from him. Praise God, he's involved in our lives and he listens to us and he does something about our troubles. We can expect great things from God. Who can expect great things from God? Can you? Yes. Yes, if you're depending on him in the way that's described in this psalm.